Okay, so I guess we can start. So when we left on today's Friday, when we left on Wednesday, right, we were talking about immunoglobulin molecules and the structure of the DNA and the genes of the immunoglobulin molecule. All right. So let's just sort of take a step back, right, after we looked and talked about you know all sorts of V's and D's and J's and rearrangements and things taking place during the development of the B cell inside the bone marrow. And what's happening? What's the big picture? The big picture is that at any one point in time, you have maybe thousands of B cells pouring out of your bone marrow every, you know, hour or so. So you probably have millions or billions of B cells inside your bone marrow undergoing some sort of differentiation at any one point in time. It means that you have certain B cells in your bone marrow right now that are ripping out a V gene segment and they're ripping out a J gene segment and they're bringing them together to make a new light chain. And you have B cells inside your body right now that are taking the V and the D and the J and bringing them together with a constant region and making IgM. Right? The B cell is differentiating inside your bone marrow. It gets to be a mature bone marrow and it comes flooding out of your bone marrow. Right? And they're flying through your bone marrow, and they're making their way through the circulatory system, and they're making their way to the lymph nodes, and they're taking up residency inside the spleen, and they're just waiting. They're just waiting for an antigen to come by that they're going to be able to recognize. So what that means is natural selection theory is absolutely wrong. Right? The clonal theory Right, the theory that we talked about, the clonal selection theory, where you have B cells that before they come into contact with an antigen, they're already pre-placed and ready to respond. So it has nothing to do, the antigen is not in charge of our immune system. The antigen does not call the shots for our immune system. So that whole silly putty thing, right? with, oh, we have this antibody and it's going to form around an antigen and it, you know, and it's, it's some sort of change is going to take place. Yeah, all that's happening, but all that has happened already. So those B cells have that antigen receptor sitting on their cell surface and it's just waiting. And it's waiting. And it's waiting. So, that's kind of a lie. But when we talk about B cell differentiation, I'll tell you why that's a lie, okay? So you have all these B cells, you have all these individual unique antigen receptors on the cell surface just waiting to come into contact with antigen. So that's really the big picture, right? And the way it's going to do it is by having those little gene segments, those little gene pieces and rearranging them to make unique antibody molecules, right? And today we'll talk about how those unique antibody molecules are going to form. But before we do that, right, we have more information from sequencing. Right? You probably have taken molecular biology, so you know all about enhancers, you know all about promoters, but it was by studying immunoglobulin gene synthesis that all of these things were first found. Right? A lot of information came out of looking at B cells. So we know about enhancers. Right? Cis-acting DNA sequences that activate transcription from promoter sequences, right? They're, they're far away from each other, right? And we're going to find a whole bunch of enhancers between the last J 
gene segment and the first constant gene segment and three prime of the last constant region in the heavy chain. We know about promoters, short sequences, about 200 base pairs from transcription initiation site, basically the Tata box. It's where RNA polymerase II is going to bind. And we can find those before every V-gene segment. So we really didn't know that much about enhancers and promoters before we started looking at immunoglobulin molecules. And really, immunoglobulin synthesis is a real good model to study because if we have one of those myelomas, one of those B-cell tumors from a mouse, and that myeloma is going to give us right, the same basic cell, the same basic DNA, the same basic protein every single time, right? because it's a transformed cell, so that transformed cell is going to be the same no matter if we study it today, tomorrow, or two years from now. Right? So we got a lot of information from that system, right? because we had this really good starting bunch of material in those cells themselves. So we got a whole bunch of enhancers, right? Enhancers are on all, all these different places, right? All the different promoters are out here. There they are in between the variable region of the kappa chain and the variable region of the, of the, of the lambda chain, the light chain. And then the heavy chain has got a bunch of promoters and a bunch of enhancers. So all of these DNA sequences are found, right? And they're going to be there because we need to basically move from this newly arranged DNA, right, into making these proteins. So, how are we going to make these proteins? How are we going to generate some, well, well, but before we talk about that, sorry, we have an important thing to talk about, right? Transcription factors. Didn't know a lot about transcription factors before we started looking at immunoglobulin gene synthesis either. So, we got a bunch of different sort of DNA binding proteins to the promoters, right? PY, mu E3, octae, just for, uh, uh, for an example. It appears that octet is specific for B cells, so we're getting to some sort of specificity taking place here in terms of enhancers, mu B, octet, and F kappa B. Oct2 is going to be specific for B cells, so B cells have specific promoters, specific enhancers. It was during the time that we were looking at these promoters and these, these transcription factors in general, right, and probably the first well-characterized transcription factor came out of this work. And the person who first found and, and looked at and studied NF-kappa-B was going to go on and win a Nobel Prize as well. He wanted for something else, but he was one of the big shots that started looking at NF-kappa-B, nuclear factor kappa-B. Okay. In most cells, right, it's in an inactive form, and it's complexed with an inhibitor. It's called I-kappa-B and inside the cytoplasm. So NF-kappa-B and I-kappa-B are inside the cytoplasm. And during signals, intracellular signals, where we're going to be able to take that transcription factor and it's going to make its way to the nucleus. Right? That's how we're going to free up NF-kappa-B from I-kappa-B. And at that point in time, because there was so much NF-kappa-B inside B cells, people thought this was the only transcription factor because it was so overwhelmingly in a huge proportion right, that it was the most, the most easiest. I guess that's the right. It was the easiest one. I can't, most easy. It was the easiest one to purify, and it was the easiest one to study. So it was the first most well-characterized one. 
Now, we know that NF kappa B is almost ubiquitous, right? It is a transcription factor that's in every single cell, basically. But at that point in time, right, we didn't know that much about it, and it was the major transcription factor in the B cells. It was so prevalent in the B cells that you can find it constitutively present in the nucleus of B cells. It means that in B cells, NF-kappa B probably usually isn't in its complex form between NF-kappa B and I-kappa B in the cytoplasm. It's usually inside the nucleus because right, immunoglobulin gene synthesis, immunoglobulin sort of regulation is very important. So it's almost turned on all the time inside a B cell. So a B cell is constantly making immunoglobulin molecules. The other part about it that we'll talk about later on is it's involved in regulating transcription of AIDS-infected cells as well. So signals that are turning on T cells are also turning on NF-kappa B, and NF-kappa B is the major transcription factor for AIDS proteins as well. So that's what makes the AIDS virus so dangerous. Because normal sort of things that are going to turn on T cells, turn on B cells, are also going to turn on transcription of AIDS proteins. Right? So we'll talk a lot about NF-kappa B later on. Now we can get the mechanisms that we're going to be able to generate diversity, right? We need to make lots and lots and lots of different antibody molecules. We need to be able to recognize any epitope that we may come into contact with. Right? If there's any time we can't recognize an epitope, we're in trouble. Because that means the invader has the upper hand. It means that, our anti that we will have a sort of hole in our armor. Right? Because we're not going to have an antibody that's going to be able to respond to a specific epitope. So we need to be able to just churn out and start pouring out every single combination that could possibly be presented to the immune system. And that's why we need to have all these different antibody molecules. So the first thing we have right, to be able to generate this diversity is we have multiple germline gene segments. Right, both the heavy chain and the light chains have multiple V regions. If you're looking at the heavy chain, it has multiple D gene segments, right? So we have a lot of V gene segments, a lot of D gene segments to be able to come together to make right, different sort of combinations. We have the effect of VJ and also VDJ joining. Right? So we got different combinations of V gene segments and J gene segments in the light chain, different combinations of V, D, and J gene segments in the heavy chain. Right? When, we, when we had that picture, we're going to take this V and this J, or we're going to take this V and this D and this J. So we have multiple right, gene segments that we're going to be able to, to pick from. Right? We have different associations between heavy chains and light chains, right? In one B cell, we're going to have a particular heavy chain and a light chain. In another B cell, we're going to have a particular heavy chain and light chain. So that ability of that binding area, right, in the FAB region is going to be different. So mathematically, right, you could figure out all these different things. 
Right? You count up the number of V's, you count up the number of D's, you count up the number of J's, you count up you know, the number of different heavy chains and light chains that could be. So mathematically, we could come up with a, with a potential repertoire of antibody molecules. Right? I'm not that good in math, so I couldn't do it. Right? But maybe there are some people in the room who could do it, so you count up the V's, kind of right. So you do all those different things. And when you do all those things, you're going to find that at the end of the day, you're only going to have the potential to make, bless you, maybe a couple of 10,000, couple of 100,000 different antibody molecules. Right? Because we know exactly how many V's, we know exactly how many D's, we know exactly how many J's, right? We've sequenced genomes so we, can, we know all those different things. But that's not the half of it. That's not even the, I don't know, I can't make that calculation in my head. That's not even the one hundredth of, that's not even the one thousandth of it. Because right? we have a lot of mechanisms that are going to generate diversity through biological ways as well. And the, one of the major ones is called junctional flexibility. And junctional flexibility is basically that imprecise DNA rearrangements that are taking place. So the three prime end of the V gene segment and the five prime end of the J in the light chain or the VDJ in the heavy chain can recombine at any of several nucleotides. Right before, remember when I said when we looked at that picture, don't think that we're going up there and we're using a razor blade to cut out right that that bunch of uh, sequences in the V gene segments that are surrounded by the recombination signal sequences that we can go right on either side, give or take a couple of nucleotides around those recombination signal sequences. Right? It's mediated by the proteins we talked about, right? By Reg1 and Reg2 and Artemis. Artemis is the nucleus that's going to be able to make those cuts. Right? So we're going to be able to get in there, and on either side we're going to be able to take a look at things. So, right, let's look at this cartoon. So, here's a recombination signal sequence that's identifying the J gene segment. Here's a recombination signal sequence that's, that's identifying the V gene segment, right? Uh, RAG1 is going to bind, RAG2 is coming along, Artemis is going to be there, blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, this goes, this goes, we bring these two pieces right next to each other. Right? So, in this example, in example number one, RAG genes have cut here, and they've cut here, and we're bringing these two pieces together. So what do we get? We get this DNA sequences, right? Because remember, and we talked about that, you can't just look at those yellow boxes and those red boxes and those blue boxes, because we do have an actual DNA sequence on there, right? This goes, keeps going on for millions of nucleotides, and this goes that way for millions of nucleotides, right? So, when we bring this piece and this piece together based on these cuts at this example, right, we have glue, asp, alanine, threonine, and arginine. Right? If, on the other hand, in the B cell next door, reg has bound here, reg bound here, they came together, they made the cut, right? So now we're cutting one nucleotide right back. Over here, we're cutting, right, basically one nucleotide back just at random. We bring them together. We have the same glue, right, because we're reading from this way. So we have the same glue, asparagine. We turn that alanine into a glycine, and now we have a threonine and an arginine. They're still there. Same thing in example number three right here. Right? We're going to bind here, bind here, make the cut, come in. 
same glue, same acid, tryptophan now, threonine, arginine. So that means, right, that we've just changed, so we made from alanine to glycine, that's probably not much of a big change, right, alanine to glycine, we might have ch changed that, let's say we're looking at CDR3, we might have made CDR, oh, it's like hand puppet time, we made CDR3 go from, you know, from this to this, but if we're putting in that tryptophan, maybe we made CDR3 turn to that. I can't bend it back the other way. Right? So we change it to something else. So we're changing that binding area. We're changing that binding pocket. If we're looking at VJ here, it means we're changing CDR3 of the light chain. Right? So it's going to be a little bit different. So every CDR3 area here is going to be a little bit different and we're going to get a different diversity, we're going to get a different ability for that, that binding area, for that recognition area to be different, right? So we're changing it all the time just in the fact that we're getting this imprecise, right? It's not cutting here every single, if it cut here every single time and it cut here every single time, every, every amino acid would be, every amino acid would be this and it would look exactly the same. But there would be no difference, okay? Now, sometimes, right, just at randomly speaking, sometimes it's not going to work, okay? Because sometimes, and if we're looking at sometimes, we're looking here at example number four, some, right, rag bound here, rag bound here, we bring them together, we got our same glycine, we got our same asparagine, we got our alanine, that, we turn it into asparagine over here from a threonine, so, okay, good, we're getting some diversity, right, I don't remember my, my uh, codon sort of uh, shorthand, but I do know TAG, right, TAG is stop. So, this mRNA, Right, it's made its way out. We're starting to make a protein molecule. Right, the transfer transfers are coming in. We're adding a glue, an aspirin, an alanine, asparagine. Stop! It falls off the ribosome. We're not getting the rest of that light chain. It's unproductive. Same thing at random. Same thing could happen here. Right, we bring this cut in. We bring this cut in. Now we have this piece on the ribosome. Glue, valine, okay, we have a new difference here. We made, we've changed it, another TAG. We get a stop codon, it falls off, right? This is the risk-benefit ratio. The risk is that we're gonna get an unproductive rearrangement and we're not making a light chain, right? We did not accomplish our goal here, right? That B cell, as it is undergoing those random, right, those random sort of cuts and differentiation inside the bone marrow, it has not made a light chain. So it's not going to be able to make an antibody molecule. That's the risk. The benefit is we're going to have all these different antibody molecules using this mechanism. It appears, for reasons we can't tell, that this doesn't really happen a lot. This is the predominant result. So we're not really sure right, what the mechanism for that is. So we're making brand new, well not brand new, we're making different antibody molecules due to junctional flexibility. Okay? So it can lead to out-of-frame failures, but that's the price you're going to pay. Right? If an occasional B cell 
can't make a light chain and we can't make an antibody molecule, well, right? It's like jobs in this economy. You don't want the job? There's plenty more of you guys where that came from, right? Those B cells are pouring out of the bone marrow. You don't want to take the job? Fine, don't take the job. I got 500 people coming in here looking for a job, right? So that's the, that's the benefit to it. Just because we're getting a couple of, of frame failures, we're getting a couple of unproductive rearrangements of our light chains, it doesn't mean that it's going to put us to a disadvantage. Because we have many, many, many more productive ones, and those B cells that are leaving the bone marrow have a fully functional light chain, heavy chain combination for that antigen receptor on the surface. So this is one way we're going to generate diversity. All right. Well, actually, it's the fourth way. <laughs> we have another way, the fifth way. It's called P-region nucleotide addition. Okay? So, after the V-region gene segments combine, right, there's a second cleavage by Artemis of that hairpin. Yesterday, we talked about a little hairpin that forms at the end, right, the, between the V's and the J's. It's going to leave a short, single strand of nucleotides. We're going to add some complementary nucleotides there, and it's going to fill in the gap. Let's put up a picture. Right? It's called p-nucleotide addition. So, right when we had, right, we had the rags here, and we said at the at the end of the day when the rags were done, they had this little hairpin there, this protected piece. Artemis comes in, it clips this, right? This comes out, this comes out here. We fill in. Right? These nucleotides right here, right? We repair that, so we're going to put a, right? We're going to put an A, a G, a C, and a T here, and they're going to go there, and then we're going to bring them together. We just generated some more diversity, right? Because we have all of these extra nucleotides here, and they're going to fall in line, and as that codon comes down, they're going to be part of new nucleotides. New nucleotides are going to make new amino acids. New amino acids are going to make a new sequence. We've just made some more diversity in our antibody molecules. So we have this taking place. Right? It's an infomercial, but wait, there's more. We also have a thing that's called N-nucleotide addition. It only happens during heavy chain VDJ joining. Right? Ooh, I can just I can just hear the test question now. What's the give me some differences between generating diversity in a light chain and a heavy chain? I have the test we can hand them back. Okay? There's just so right, it only happens in the heavy chain. What happens is we get additional amino acid sequence that aren't encoded by immunoglobulin gene segments, right? And up to about 15 additional one of these N-nucleotides can be added. It's a random process mediated by Artemis and also terminal deobroxynucleotermase, right? TDT. TDT is a template independent, right? It's independent of the template polymerase. It is one of the major sort of enzymes. Anybody works in the molecular biology lab, right? Everybody has used TDT. TDT is a pretty powerful thing in the molecular biology sort of world, right? It catalyzes addition of nucleotides to three prime terminus of DNA. Right? And it's going to be able to take any sort of edge effect of the DNA, 
be it a, 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 a protruding or a recessed, and it's going to turn it into a blunt end of the DNA. And TDT was, again, first discovered in B cells. And we'll see that when you look at B cells differentiating from immature B cells to mature B cells, there's going to be a spike in TDT in very young differentiating B cells because it's there right, to be used during these mechanisms that are going to make the diversity that we're talking about. So basically, N starts just like P. <laughs> so we're going to come in, we're going to make the cut, right? it's going to fold out, we're going to repair this whole thing in here just like we did with P region addition, only here that TDT is now going to add a bunch of different nucleotides. We don't know where they come from. We don't know how they get there. Right? Clearly, right, <laughs> if you looked at the entire genome and you wanted to try to figure out where a sequence of AGT came from, right, how many sequences of AGT must there be in our genome? billions of them, right? So we're really not sure where these nucleotides come from, but somehow TDT goes out there and grabs them, right? They make the repair, and they're added right in there. So again, right, as we're reading along our codon, triplicate, 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 new triplicate, that means new amino acids can, uh, that are going to be part in here, means we're going to have diversity. Right? We're going to have another difference in there. So again, Right? We're taking all those amino acids and we're just changing around all those CDRs to make different binding abilities of the heavy chain and the light chain. Okay. Okay, if you weren't satisfied with six, will you be satisfied with seven? So, one of the more powerful ones that we can talk about after antigenic stimulation is called somatic hypermutation. Okay? And somatic hypermutation is going to involve preliminarily V gene segments. And what it appears to be is random point mutations. Now I say random, but evidence is suggesting that it's not so random. So what are we talking about? So let's look at, right? heavy chain V regions and light chain V regions. And what we're looking at here is, right, these are just DNA sequences, right? So we're starting here and we're just sequencing DNA. So again, all of these are CTG, CGC, blah, 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 right, all the way through. So here's the CDR1, here's CDR2, here's CDR3 in the, in the heavy chain. Here's CDR1, here's CDR2, here's CDR3 in the light chain. These are all different B cells, right? From the, from the places that we're looking at. We're not doing much of anything in terms of looking at anything except the sequences. So, what's going to take place? So here's our B cell as it leaves the bone marrow. And this is the sequence of the B cell as it leaves the bone marrow. If we add some antigen and we stimulate the B cell, what we're going to see a week later is, right, we get these point mutations that are taking place in here. If we take that B cell and we stimulate it with antigen again, we see some more point mutations in here. Right? We see some sort of changes taking place. We see it in the light chain, we see it in the heavy chain. If we take those B cells and we stimulate it again and again with antigen, more and more and more 
And look at the way they're sort of lining up almost exactly with CDR1, CDR2, and CDR3. So what's going on? Apparently what's going on is, let's say right, that this is our antigen, right? And our antibody molecule right, sort of comes in here. And, you know, there's enough of a recognition that's taken place there. We talked about the van der Waals forces, the three-dimensional structure to be able to recognize it, okay? So, that's what has happened right here, right? This B cell is sitting in your lymph node, it's sitting in your spleen, right? Some protein has gone by, it recognizes the protein, it binds to the protein, right? Remember, this is now, right, the antigen receptor basically sitting on the surface of the B cell this B cell becomes stimulated. Right. Somatic hypermutation starts to take place. So now we're going to get some point mutations taking place in here. So what are these point mutations doing? What they're doing is, they're just so, well, how about this one? They're sort of changing CDR1, CDR2, CDR3. So we're going to change it to that in the first try. Right. And then it comes back, and then we get more point mutations. Then it comes back, we get a few more point mutations. It appears that we're changing this molecule into a high affinity molecule. Right. We're going to change that antibody to higher affinity. So we're going to go from that avidity type situation, right, when this was an IgM molecule, and we're getting it better and better and better and better to now it's going to be a high affinity antibody molecule. Okay, remember when we talked about IgM, good avidity, not good affinity, IgG, high in affinity? That's what's taking place here. This B cell, right, is turning into a better weapon, or this, the, the ability of this antibody when it leaves this B cell is turning into a better weapon, because now we have a high affinity molecule that's going to be able to stay bound, and it's going to be able to, right, we haven't put up this picture in a while, right, it's going to be able to recognize those antigens on the surface better, and it's going to bind better, longer, and stronger to that pathogen. So that appears what's going on with somatic hypermutation. Right? It's either going to make an antibody have a higher affinity, or, right, we've got to bring in that or, we're rolling the dice again. Right? What could happen here? What could happen here is, right, we could make it do this. And we just lost it. Right? That's our risk-benefit ratio again. The benefit is we're getting higher and higher affinity antibodies, the, the risk is we totally don't allow this antigen to be recognized by this antibody anymore. Right. Again, the mechanism is not well understood, but it appears that most of the time it gets it right. It doesn't make one of these, right? It does. make one of these. Right, I'll make it even better. A very high affinity antibody. Right? The reaction is initiated by deamination right, of a C to a U. 
the C gets, gets changed to a U, it's like a thymine. It's now going to have an, uh, an A be able to bind to it. Activation-induced deaminase, right? That's the enzyme, right? It's a, it's a different sort of repair mechanism, right, in conjunction with the error-prone polymerases, and it leads to characteristic patterns of mutations, right? A residues are targeted twice as much as T residues. Right, AID is a recently identified enzyme. We're really not sure how it works so well. Okay, but we do know that it does work. So AID comes in, CG goes to UG, the U gets changed, right? It now comes in as a mutation, and when the repair takes place, right, we get a different sort of a different sort of change right here, change in this nucleotide is going to result in change of that codon, change in the amino acid sequence, make a better fit. Add them all together, right? We're looking at the mouse right here, okay? We could do with people, but in the mouse, right? It's probably higher in people, so we know about the heavy chain. It's either going to be a kappa or a lambda chain. Right in the mouse, it's probably going to be kappa most of the time. So, right? You want to do the math? Here's the math part. Right? We have 134 Vs, a bunch, of, a bunch of Js, a bunch of Ds in the heavy chain, right? We got, in the light chain, we got, right, 3 times 2 is 6, 85 times 4 is 340. There's the math part. Right? We have different heavy and light chain associations, right? Heavy chain plus a kappa. We could have heavy chain plus a lambda. Right? So this could be 10 to the sixth different antibody molecules. This would be 10 to the fourth antibody molecules. Right? Ten, what's 10 to the fourth? There's 100,000. This is a million. So we have a million antibodies. You think that's pretty good? Yeah, it's better to be a billionaire than to be a millionaire. But if you bring in junctional diversity, the total potential repertoire, right? I'm not saying that this is how many there are. Anywhere from a billion to a hundred billion different antibody molecules can be, what's the word, manufactured? Right? Okay. Can be manufactured by typical B cell. So that means at any one point in time, from all those billions of, of B cells inside your body, we have billions of different potential binding recognition sites in those FAB regions, right? Billion to 100 billion different epitopes we're going to be able to recognize. That's the power of this protein manufacturing capability. If we needed DNA to, right, to have 100 billion proteins, we'd be really big, right? Because we'd have to have a lot of DNA. It means our cells would have to be bigger. Right? When the genome was sequenced, how many proteins right in the genome? People were surprised. There's only about 30,000 different proteins that we have. The amount of proteins we have, you know, statistically speaking, a fly has just as many proteins as we do. Right? Something happened along the evolutionary pathway. Right? We can talk and we can you know, go to college and uh, maybe flies go to fly college. I don't know. But right, from the same amount of proteins, 
Right? People were surprised when we sequenced the genome and they, that's all the proteins we have. With everything we can do, that's all the proteins we have. Bottom line is, now it appears right, that we can manufacture all sorts of different proteins by doing all sorts of modifications to proteins. Right? So we're going to take those building blocks of those proteins and we're going to change them. Right? We're going to switch around things and change them so those proteins are going to have the ability to do different things. But here is a totally different way of generating more proteins. Right? We're going to take individual V's, individual J's, right? bring them all together, and we're going to be able to generate Right? This is a symbiotic relationship, right? Because the sum of what's going on here is far greater than any of the sums of what's going on over here. So those imprecise, right? Those junctional flexibilities, the P addition, the N addition, right? All those things that are taking place are going to generate this potential repertoire. We need all these, we need the ability to have all these things taking place. All right, so what else can we tell by sequencing the DNA? The next thing we need to, to think about is, right, how are we going to go from IgM to anything else? Right? And after antigenic stimulation, the B cells are going to be able to switch immunoglobulin classes, right? We said, remember, we had that picture when we were making the heavy chain in that very first B cell rearrangements that had taken place at the very bottom of the picture. We were making IgM or IgD. And that's what we're making first. But we have all these other antibody models. We have these high affinity IgGs. We got these secretory IgAs. Right, we got some sneeze invoking IgEs, right? So we have all these different other antibody classes. How are we going to be able to switch, right? We're going to switch isotypes. We're going to sequence, and what we're going to find is we have this uh, mechanism that's called switch recombination. Okay? So when switch recombination, a rearranged VDJ is going to recombine with a downstream constant region and the intervening DNA is going to be deleted. And this switch combination is brought about by switch regions, right? They're nucleotide sequences at the five prime end of each of the constant region genes. It's only in the heavy chain, right? And these switch regions, or this ability to be able to switch, heavy class switching, is going to be stimulated by the environment that the B cell is in, and it's probably stimulated by a whole different combination of cytokines. Right? Maybe there's some sort of cell-cell contact in there too, but it appears to be cytokines. So things like interleukin-4 is an IgE switch factor. Interferon gamma is an IgG2A switch factor. Right? So let's put it on the board. Right? What are we talking about? What we're talking about is we're talking about this B cell right here. That B cell has just come out of the bone, well, not just, it came out of the bone marrow last week. Right? It graduated B cell school, it left the bone marrow, it's out on the periphery, it's been stimulated, and now we've got to change this to an IgG molecule. Because right? that's what we want. We want right, those very powerful IgG molecules to be secreted by this B cell, so they can make their way 
and bind to this bacteria, right? Uh, let's make the whole big picture. So our bean-shaped nucleus, right? Macrophage with its FC receptors can come in and right be part of the cleanup as well. So here are the switch regions, right in here, and the same kind of mechanism appears to going to be able to take place, right? So right away. In this rearranged piece, right, this is the new rearranged piece, well, not the new, but this is the rearranged piece of DNA. Here's the VDJ region, right, it's the heavy chain. And there's our mu, and there's our delta, right, so we're going to make either IgM or IgD, right. We come along, we read, we read, we read, we fall up the ribosome, we have a nice IgM monomer right now. Something's going to take place where the switch is going to be made. There's a switch place, there's a switch place. That intervening DNA is gone, right? There's gamma-1. We just made IgG. Okay? All we're going to do is take this out, right? Remember, once this VDJ recombination took place, we didn't do anything downstream from there. So all that stuff is still there. So we make the switch. Now we make an IgG molecule. We come in, we make another switch. Now we're making, right, what is that? Now we're making IgE. If we came in and we pulled it out, we needed to make IgA, then all of this stuff would be gone, and this VGA would be sitting right next to the, the alpha constant region. We'd be making IgA. Right? So it's the same sort of mechanism. The most important part of this picture is we're not doing anything to this. That, that rearranged heavy chain right, is this part right here. So we don't really care right, what we're doing to this part of the molecule. This part of the molecule cannot change. Right? If we had a whole bunch of new VDJ movement going on over here, some new bunch of DNA rearrangements, that antibody molecule wouldn't be that antibody molecule anymore. That piece that it's recognizing, that epitope that it's recognizing, that we need because it's already been chosen, because this antibody is recognizing this antigen, it cannot change. Because then it's not that antibody anymore, and then it's just a, another different antibody molecule. So the, all the important right sort of differences in that binding area, the FAB, is not affected at all. The same, the same, the same, the same. All we're doing, we're just mucking around. We're going to take, right, same way we did it before. We don't need this anymore. Let's make, it a, let's make a gamma 2B. Uh, we don't need this anymore. Let's make an IgE. Uh, we don't need that anymore. Let's make an IgA. Once we've made an IgA here, there's no coming back. Right? Once you go IgA, there's no coming back. Because everything else in between is gone. We have no more heavy to, we have no more constant region gene sequences anymore. Right? So IgA is sort of the ultimate immunoglobulin molecule. Because it can't come back. Okay? So we found, we saw this, we found this by looking at those sequences. Again, right, we just sequence in lots and lots and lots of things. So again, the mechanism is largely unknown. It too appears to be mediated 
by AID, right? By that, uh, right? That uh, activation-induced. Where are we? That activation-induced deaminase, right? Somehow, it's going to be involved with recognition and changing of these sequences, right? We're going to get rid of them. We're going to get rid of them. What else do we need to explain? Hey, we're tying up all sorts of loose ends today. Membrane versus secreted immunoglobulin. Here we have membrane-bound immunoglobulin. Here we have secreted immunoglobulin. Right? How are we going to get from a membrane-bound protein to a freely secreted protein? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to look at right, the carboxy terminus of the molecule. So membrane and secreted immunoglobulin differ only at the carboxy terminus. So in membrane mu, right, we're talking about the heavy chain, so in membrane mu, that C4 domain is followed by a spacer, a 26-hydrophobic transmembrane residue, and a short sort of tailpiece. Your typical, right, cell surface protein, right, the lipid bilayer, right, we need to have that sort of, right, hydrophobic, right, we don't like water, so we've got to be hidden away from water, so we sit inside the lipid bilayer. Okay. Then we have this short tail piece. Right. We need to have some sort of, of uh, transduction function for signals inside the cell. I'm lying to you here, but oh, you'll see why. Oh, so in secreted mu, we just get rid of right, all that intervening stuff. It's followed by a short tail piece. So here's, here's membrane bound. Right, we got that short little piece. We're still on the outside. Here's the membrane spanning hydrophobic region, a little bit of cytoplasmic region. Right? All we're going to do is knock that part off. If we knock that all that part off, then we have a secreted molecule. We'll be able to secrete it right out. The mechanism is alternative mRNA splicing. Right? The gene right, is gets slightly different forms of the same protein by getting rid of certain sequences, right? Skipping or including certain sequences from the messenger. That's all. We just cut that part out. We just cut that part of the mRNA out so we go from membrane to secreted, right? So all immunoglobulin is transcribed as membrane, but then it undergoes processing. So related to the differentiation of the B cell, as differentiation proceeds, more and more and more is going to be secreted now. Right? We don't need this anymore. We don't need this monomeric IgM anymore. It has done its job. It's recognized this epitope. This epitope right, needs to be identified. So we've got to go from membrane immunoglobulin to secreted immunoglobulin. So this B cell basically turns all of this basically off and puts everything into, right, just getting rid of that piece, right, that's the hydrophobic piece. All it does is just clips it off. Boom. Now we're going to make secreted immunoglobulin molecules. We go from this to this. We go from this to this, right? So there's membrane. The membrane has those, those spanning regions because they're going to be part of the mRNA. Through the processing, we don't put them on. Now we get a secreted mu 
So now we go from membrane immunoglobulin to secreted immunoglobulin. Oh man, we even have extra minutes. All right, so let's talk about the test, shall we? Right, people get nervous about the test. Some people should be nervous about the test. Right? The grades ranged from an 18 to 104. So anybody who got 104, I don't think you have to talk to me. Anybody who got the 18, maybe you want to talk to me. Right? So 18 to 104, it followed a nice, it wasn't nice, it followed a bell-shaped curve. It put the average grade of this exam at a 72. So it means whatever you have on your paper, that's on, there's no curve, right? We don't need a curve. If the bell lands right on 72, it means it's above the curve, right? Because it should have landed on 70. So if you got a 90 and above, you got an A. If you got an 80 and above, you got a B. If you got a Z, right? Now, a lot of people don't like the first exam. You know, a lot of people, oh, there's way too much stuff, I didn't know what to study, it's just a mishmash of everything. People do better in the, during the second exam. Now, I'm not going to say you are going to do better. Well, I hope you do do better, on, you individually do better on the second exam. But a lot of people like the second exam because we're basically just concentrating on, right, three things. Immunoglobulin molecules, we're going to talk about MHC molecules, and then we're going to talk about the T-cell receptor. Right, so again, some people think, you know, the second test is a little easier. All right, so A through G. Oh, there's a lot of G's. There's a lot of G's. Oh, my God, look at all, holy moly. A through G. Sorry. H, H through O. Everybody else. And I'm not, when I'm not answering questions about this right now. We'll talk outside, come to my office, I'm going to ignore you, I'm not being rude. 